It's the TMI Project Podcast, a series of stories about the too much information parts of ourselves we usually leave out because we're too ashamed or embarrassed. I'm your host, Eva Tenuto. This is Season 3, Stories for Choice. Before we get started, just want to let you know that as the TMI implies, some content might be too much information for some listeners. And remember, your support keeps our content free and accessible to everyone who wants to listen. So if you like what you hear and you're able to chip in, you can do so at tmiproject.org, where you'll also find some really great merch. Either way, thank you. We are so glad you're listening. Let's dive right in. It's the final episode of the season, and today, oh boy, I'm practicing what I preach, and I'm going to share about the abortion I had in 1997, the day before my 24th birthday. I told this story on stage in 2018. At that point, it had been almost 21 years since the procedure. And I have to admit, this was the story I was still the most afraid to tell. The subject of abortion is so polarizing that I was afraid to admit in public to having one. I was afraid of how I'd be judged or if some people in the audience would hate me. I still had pent up shame about the circumstances that I was in all those years earlier, and shame was doing to me what it does to everyone, keeping me silent. One of the reasons that Stories for Choice is so important to me personally is because while I don't regret my abortion, the experience was devastating for me, and I didn't feel like I had a place to talk about it. We recently had Dr. Elizabeth Lord Rollins as a guest speaker at one of our events, and she said something that let me know I was not alone. There's this story that folks who terminate a pregnancy are taking it lightly. I've heard people say to me it's a form of contraception for these people. I have had the privilege of stewarding more than a couple of hundred individuals through terminations of pregnancy. My youngest patient for this procedure was 12. My oldest patient for this procedure was in her mid-50s. And there's not a single patient that I've ever been with who, having to even face this question hasn't been a a life-changing event for her. And it's something we always will carry with us, no matter what our decision is. In 1997, I was part of numerous activist circles for reproductive justice and felt like talking about the emotional component of abortion that some of us go through was not welcome because it gave the other side ammunition. If there is anything this series does, I hope it offers people a way to process the complicated circumstances and emotions surrounding reproductive justice, while also providing the tools needed to protect ourselves and our rights. It's not one or the other. We deserve both. I read this story at, of all places, an evening honoring the legacy of Prince and his music. Take a listen, and you'll understand why. It's the summer of 1997. For my 24th birthday, Rachel, one of my best friends from high school, gives me the most amazing present I can imagine receiving. A ticket to see Prince at Jones Beach Theater, where he's playing on my actual birthday, July 23rd. 
The plan is for me to drive down from Rosendale, where I'm managing a bed and breakfast, and meet Rachel and her boyfriend Andre there. I am beside myself. I am not a Prince fan. I am admittedly a full-on Prince fanatic. I imagine that this must be the way my old Italian aunt felt when she found out that she was going to see Frank Sinatra for the first time. Rachel was a junior when I was a freshman. We were in drama club together and enjoyed freaking people out by staging full-blown fake fights in public. In those two years of school together, we established a deep connection that has lasted a lifetime. After high school, we both headed to New York City to study acting, and after a few years in the mid-90s, got an apartment together in the East Village on Avenue A between 9th and 10th Street, across from Tompkins Square Park. After some neighborhood hopping, I felt like I had finally found my true home. But after a few years, I decided to move back upstate and take that job at the new bed and breakfast in Rosendale. I had been partying way too much. In fact, once I decided to leave the city, Rachel wasn't able to renew our lease, thanks in part to our out-of-control partying, and also Prince's latest album, Emancipation. After nights of heavy drinking, Rachel and I would stumble up the four flights of stairs and blast our favorite song from the three-disc compilation set, an eight-minute track called Sleep Around. We would crank it at top volume and not just dance, but have a full-on two-person dance-off competition <laughs> right there in our living room. What we loved about this song was the build and the crescendo. Around minute five, there was a fierce drum solo that never failed to throw us over the edge and inspire Rachel to bust out her bongo drums. <laughs> Obviously, this was not something our neighbors appreciated at 4 a.m. on the daily. <laughs> I thought relocation to the city would help me calm down. Maybe there it would be easier for me to switch from shots of tequila and cheap beer to green juices and herbal tea. But the bed and breakfast didn't catch on too quickly, and with no guests and many bottles of wine in the cellar, I was left to my own devices. And even though I was now in the middle of the woods, I continued to party like it was 1999. Early that July, in the midst of the never-ending party, I learned that I was five weeks pregnant. I'm devastated. It's a moment I'd fantasized about, but this was not how the daydream version unfolded. It's only the second drunk hookup with a friend that gets me pregnant, and now a baby is starting to grow inside me, and I don't know what to do. My friend makes it clear that even though he'll support whatever decision I make, he doesn't want to have a child at that time. He also makes it very clear that if I have the baby, he will help and participate, but we will not be forming a family. He doesn't see a future for us. Intellectually, I don't have a problem with abortion. In fact, I am passionately pro-choice. In college, I was a women's studies major. I did an internship at NARAL. I marched on Washington, but I had also always wanted to be a mom, always. I started babysitting when I was nine years old. I got my first job helping out at a preschool at 12. I nannied my way through college. I had already raised other people's kids, lots of them, in fact. Desperate for guidance, I find a local pregnancy support center that promotes counseling services to help women come to the right decision for themselves. But when I arrive, 
They show me these manipulative pro-life propaganda videos. I run out feeling taken advantage of in my most vulnerable state. I remain undecided for what seems like an eternity, but in actuality is only just a couple of weeks. I'm ashamed to admit so many things, but most of all, I'm ashamed to admit that through it all, I can't seem to stop drinking. I'm baffled at myself, but I can't stop. The pain and stress are too much, and at the time, drinking is the only way I know to find relief. My circumstances, as bad as they are, are not as strong as the grip of my addiction. One hot afternoon, I spend the day talking about all of the pros and cons with a friend. At some point, he says something so simple, yet it's the first thing that lands as the ultimate truth. It seems, he says, that you're just getting started on your path and going through this could really interrupt your opportunity to become who you're supposed to be. Even in my drunken haze, I have the sense to know that I'm not even close to being who I'm supposed to be. I have things that I want to do and accomplish before having a baby, which I don't want to do by myself. Once I make the decision, fueled by the intense desire to put it all behind me, I rush into action. I can't stand my inability to escape the problem growing inside my body. There's no way to not think about it when it accompanies me everywhere I go and grows with each passing day. I make the first appointment available at the closest place that's willing to knock me out. I want no memory of it. My abortion is scheduled for July 22nd, the day before my 24th birthday, the day before the Prince concert. I'm told that I won't be able to drive the day after the procedure because I'll be cramping and in pain, which means I can't get myself to Jones Beach. I contemplate not going, but Rachel encourages me to find a ride. It's your birthday, Eva, she says. You shouldn't be alone after what you're going to go through. Even if you just have to sit the whole time, at least you'll be there with us and the music will make you feel better. The problem is all of my Prince loving friends still reside in the city. I don't know anyone upstate who loves him enough to take the day off work and drive over two hours each way. The date is approaching quickly and I'm so immersed in the devastation of my circumstances that I can't navigate the logistics of finding a ride to Long Island. One day in passing, I mentioned the predicament to my friend Amelia. Before I finish explaining, she says, I'll go, I'll take you. You will? Do you even like Prince, I ask? I did not bring this up for her to give me a ride. Not really, she admits, but I'll see anything once. I just took my mother to see Willie Nelson. I'll take you to see Prince. <laughs> wow. For the first time in weeks, I feel as if I have something to look forward to. But first, I have to get through the 22nd. We ride in silence to the clinic. It's a rundown building with a huge, imposing security guard in the parking lot wearing a purple suit. He looks like he could be one of Prince's bodyguards, but no, he's there to protect the patients going in and out. When I come to in the recovery room through the slots of the Venetian blinds, I see my friend pacing the parking lot. This ordeal is now over for him, but for me, it's just beginning. When we get back to his apartment, I cry uncontrollably until his roommate gives me a Valium. I'm not capable of sitting with these unbearable feelings without taking something. The morning of the 23rd, the emotional pain is immense, but physically, I'm fine. 
Amelia and I hop into my 1989 Honda Prelude and head to Long Island. I've never been to Jones Beach before. The amphitheater sits right at the edge of the bay, a stone's throw away from the Atlantic Ocean. We meet Rachel and Andre and we climb the stairs to our seats and wait and wait and wait. It feels like fucking hours. We wait so long it starts getting weird. Finally, when we're fairly certain that Prince isn't even going to show, the music starts and a spotlight starts traveling the stage. It moves from the stage to the audience and travels from one side of the crowd to the other, building the anticipation. Oh my God, is he sitting among us? Is he sitting next to us? We start freaking out. The spotlight leaves the crowd and starts swishing back and forth on stage again. The crowd can barely stand it. We're doing exactly what he wants us to do. We are begging for him now. The build and then the crescendo. All of a sudden, the spotlight takes a bold move stage left and focuses on the bay. It lands on a boat sailing to shore. On the boat is a sparkly little five foot two sexy motherfucker. All we hear is, oh my God, we freak out and go wild. He jumps off the boat and runs onto the stage and goes at it full throttle for hours. He does splits and kicks and runs across the stage in high-heeled boots, dives onto the piano, flips over, and plays it exquisitely upside down and backwards. He looks like a prepubescent cross-dresser, and yet he's more masculine than anyone I've ever laid eyes on. How does he manage to be so many things at once? How does he manage to be so fully himself without letting gender norms and other labels define him or put him in a box clearly not big enough for all he is? Nothing has derailed this man from becoming exactly who he's supposed to be. With each song, the emptiness inside me dissipates. The life force that he puts out into the stadium is helping to fill me back up. I am beyond grateful. After the concert is over, Amelia looks like she's been reborn. <laughs> Better than Willie Nelson, I ask? Oh my God, she says. That was unbelievable. That was like seeing Jimi Hendrix, Michael Jackson, and James Brown all rolled up into one tiny little man. That was a spiritual experience. I agree. But after the intoxication of the show subsides and my grief sets back in, it lasts for years. And because my abortion happened the day before my birthday, it's impossible to ever let the day slip by without tripping on it. The pain is insurmountable. Because of all my years in activism, I'm surprised by how much the grief hurts. While once I had felt camaraderie and community because of my involvement with this movement, after my abortion, I feel alone. I feel trapped, like I can't admit that I've been damaged by the loss without offering ammunition to the opposition. I have flashbacks to what I was shown to me at the Pregnancy Support Center. I have a hard time convincing myself that I'm any different from the women I've seen on the news who get caught for throwing their newborn babies in dumpsters. I've never judged anyone else in my position so harshly, but I can't seem to stop judging myself. But as time passed, Without the interruption of a baby, I get to focus on myself. It takes quite a few more years, but eventually 
I get sober. 11 years ago, perhaps right around the same time that Prince started using drugs for pain, I stopped drinking. And for the first time, my intense desire to be a mother shifts. It's replaced by a strong intuition to turn the mothering inward and for the first time, take good care of myself. I had never done that before. I dive into recovery. Hearing people's stories in meetings and sharing my own helps me realize that I'm not alone. I begin learning how to stop running from everything and stay present through discomfort. I get to be on my right path. I know now that there's not one clear-cut box that I need to fit into either. I get to be adamantly pro-choice, mourn my loss, and be grateful for my decision all at the same time. I can admit I'm sometimes sad that I've not had children of my own, while also acknowledging I've mothered myself and many others very well. I've had the freedom to choose to become exactly who I'm supposed to be. When I talked to Rachel after Prince's untimely and tragic death, she told me what, that what she remembered from the concert was that it was one of the first times that we went to an event sober, and because we were sober, we got to experience the fullness of all he had to offer that day. At one point, she recalls, he looks out into the crowd and says, you know how you feel right now? I want you to feel this way for the rest of your life. I know Prince believed in the afterworld. I hope he now feels the way he made us feel for the rest of eternity. I hope it's a world of never-ending happiness. I hope released from the grips of his own addiction, he can always see the sun, day or night. A very special thank you to all of the storytellers of this season. In honor of all of the people who've suffered the injustices of not having control or autonomy over their own bodies, we encourage you all to keep speaking truth to power and shouting your stories from the rooftops. Let the powers that be know that we will not go back. Stay tuned for Season 4, Pride Stories where we will hear from some of our incredible storytellers from the LGBTQIA community. You don't want to miss it. I'm Eva Tenuto. If you like what we're doing, please subscribe, rate, and leave a review wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps. TMI Project is available to offer true storytelling workshops and performances for your school or workplace. This episode of Season 3 of the TMI Project podcast, Stories for Choice, was produced in partnership with Radio Kingston. It was written by me and edited, produced, and mixed by Daisha Clay. Our theme song is Secrets by Edison Woods. Our operations and programs manager is Blake File. Our marketing and digital coordinator is Laura Marie Ruoko. Our administrative assistant is Elijah Jackson. Our graphic designer is Lauren Gill. Our workshop leaders are Perla Iora, Kaepelie Kalnick, Haley Downs, Jonathan Gonzalez, Rain Grayson, Ray Lipkin, Dara Laurie, Micah, Julie Novak, Blake File, and me, Eva Tenuto. To learn more, support our work, and find a special writing prompt so you can start telling your story, visit tmiproject.org slash podcast. <laughs>